I'd like you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a, a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As you're turning to Matthew 5, I've, I've heard, you know, hearsay. I mean, I've played golf only a few times, but I've heard that golf is a relatively easy, straightforward game. You take three friends with you, you play 18 holes, and you come back with three enemies. And then you do it again next weekend. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> I can remember, and, and maybe some of you can as well, probably two years ago, a, a neighbor had just moved in across the street from us, and we were having a meeting at our house now. There are nine, yes, because I counted them before we moved into our house. There are nine places for cars to park in, on, on the side of our house because we live on this curve. And that was one of the reasons why we purchased this home so that we could have people in and out and maybe even a lot of people. Birthday parties can fill that up real fast. Uh, we were having a Bible study. I believe it was a life group meeting there. And I was told that my neighbor across the street was taking pictures of all the vehicles. I thought, oh, goodness, what is this? And uh, by the time I looked out there, he had just taken his last shot and went inside the house. Um, that following week, one of my other neighbors, who's a Christian couple, came to my house, an elderly couple, I should say older couple, um, and they came to our, ta our house and said, hey, we have been in the process of, of meeting this new, I've hardly even seen the guy, you know, but they've had a chance to meet him. And he says, hey, in the process of our conversation, he had said it's difficult for him to pull out of his driveway with his truck. Now, his truck is like one of those big 18-wheelers. It, it seems that way anyway. It, it's a high-rise truck. You know what I'm talking about, one of those beefy type of trucks. And it was difficult for him to back up. I assumed that he'd probably run over one of our vehicles and may not even realize it until later. But as he, he said, it was difficult to back up. Now, we decided, okay, whenever we have meetings, birthday parties, whatever, we're going to take two cones. So I borrowed two cones from somebody in the church, and I put one cone there and one cone there directly behind his driveway so that he could back up. Now, I'm still not able to catch up with this guy. He travels a lot with a construction company. And a couple weeks later, um, I'm noticing he doesn't even back up into that spot. He has learned the technique of backing up so well that he didn't need to, and he pulled out great. So, but I thought, you know what? We're, we're trying to serve him and honor him. He's my neighbor. And I finally catch up to him, and I notice this particular situation, you know, because I'm wondering, you know, is this guy going to become one of our enemies? I don't, I don't want that. He's my neighbor. He lives across the street. I want to welcome him and love on him and such. And he's out there. He's working in his yard, and he, he's asking me, hey, where do I put the trimmings from my crepe myrtle. You know what you know what crepe myrtles are like. You got to trim every single branch on that thing and and tie them up. And and so I told him where and how to do it and how long they should be. And I said, hey, you know what? I, I've got a um, I've got a some hand clippers. Let me just go grab them real quick and we'll just chop this up. And there was an opportunity to be able to reach out, and a potential enemy became my friend that day. And every now and then, when he'd come back from a trip, you know, he would. Or even before, he said, hey, could you do me a favor? Just keep an eye on my house. You know, my wife and kid are there, and, you know, I'm going to be gone for, like, the next two weeks. So he'd travel out to Texas, Oklahoma, and would oversee construction projects. I made a friend that day. I wish I could say that about everyone and all of my neighbors. Many years ago, 12, 13, 14 years ago, there was a neighbor that lived, maybe it was only 10, and lived across the street from us, and there was just li little things would come up, you know, when as people would leave our house and they would talk just a little bit too loud and he would get upset and I'd find out about it. And it's like, wow. So I put a little sign on our door. Hey, you are entering our mission field, you know. So when you leave at nine o'clock, please shh, be very quiet. So we tried to cater to him. One night, however, I forgot. I realized through his son who told me this, my dad goes to bed at nine o'clock. And apparently, he leaves the windows open. 
So if you're just walking down the street, you could wake them up. And I thought, well, that's not really smart, but I'm not going to tell them that. So <laughs> July 4th rolls around, and somebody in our church says, hey, I've got some fireworks. And uh, July 4th, we weren't able to do it. So July 5th, we go out there, and, and you know people are shooting fireworks off. It's 10 o'clock at night. So we go out to our street, and we shoot one off. And I'm telling you, it, it, it didn't take more than two seconds. And he bolts out of that door, and he's running towards me. And I say to my family, okay, all of you guys in my family inside, and there was a gentleman living with us, and I said, but you, Patrick, stay right here. <laughs> He crosses the street, and I immediately, I want to say, John, what is your problem? Don't you see everybody in your neighborhood is just enjoying the 4th of July, okay, the 5th of July, and God just caught my tongue, and I immediately said, John, you know what? I'm in the wrong. Please forgive me for setting off these fireworks. I just wasn't thinking. Well, that didn't stop John. Uh, the, uh, the, the swale, you know, the gutter, that did. I was, I, was for, I was glad about that, that nothing came beyond that. And he just starts, from the moment he left his house to the moment he stood there and beyond, uh, I think only four-letter words came out of his mouth, and not words like love and work and those types of words. And, and I'm trying to understand this language, and I realize John is still very upset. I, 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 can, I can catch things sometimes. And I, I, I said, John, again, I, am, I realized I can't engage in a conversation with him right now. And I said, John, again, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. We should not have set those fireworks off. But I'm going to go inside my house right, right now, and I hope you can have a good night. And my friend and I went back in the house, and he kept talking. I don't know who to, but he, he was still upset. And I just felt like, man, there was an opportunity to build a bridge there, and it didn't happen. Um, John continued to pose himself as an enemy that could not be won. He apparently went to a church, and I, I'm, I'm sure that what he was speaking was not in tongues, but a language that I didn't prefer. And... Uh, I felt like this, this is a tragedy. I felt like the enemy got in this, and how can I win this guy? And my wife and I said, God, please build this bridge. Build, show us what we can do. And you know, I'm trying to reach out to his son. His son is an atheist, and he just he thinks he knows everything and why Christians are all wrong. Um, he tells about the, you know, at least some, you know, the hurts that he's experienced growing up and he doesn't want anything to do with Christianity. I understood that. My dad was an angry man until God had to break him. And we said, okay, God, we want to be this man's friend and he won't let us. So would you please do one of two things? Either change his heart or may he move. Within two months, apparently he lost his job and God opened the door, and I believe this was God, in another state for him to work and God moved him. And I felt like, you know, there are times in which we have enemies. And I'm going to use a word to describe those types of re relationships that we see our enemies coming against us that God not only wants to change but does. I'm going to call them redemptive relationships. They are people who pose us, and, and sometimes, church, it's our fault, and as we humble ourselves, we can learn something. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. That's for another time in this sermon series. But I believe God wants to redeem those relationships. But you are going to encounter some relationships in which you can't. And you're going to pray, and, <coughs> and you're going to struggle, and you're going to fast. And it's like there is no breakthrough. And it can be frustrating. It can be disheartening. We have heard Jesus giving a, a parable about the Good Samaritan. It was prompted by an expert in the law asking the question, and who is my neighbor? And I want to ask you that question, but in a different way. Who is your enemy? 
We may understand who our neighbor is. And yes, sometimes our neighbors can be our enemies. But who is our enemy? And I'm going to very simply say this. It is anyone who opposes you. But as you respond, as Christ shows us today how to respond, some of them are going to be one. That initial neighbor living across the street, that day I made a friend. I was so happy about that. And, and my other neighbor kind of down the road a little bit, and I, as we reached out to him, we began to see God doing something in his life. Unfortunately, they lived there for only about a year, and then they moved on. But some relationships, some enemies are redemptive, and some are not. In this sermon series um, that we have just finished, called Ignited, we, we came to this conclusion that the spiritual apathy or a hardened heart due to sin or lack of hunger for Christ is not a list of things you should do unless you consider one thing a list, and that one thing is seek Jesus, seek his presence, walk with him, pursue him, spend regular time with him, <coughs> that, uh, that he would be able to move you in that direction of following after him as you pursue this, what they call, many people call the practice of his presence day by day. Uh, today, though, we are wanting to grow in this passion for Jesus by seeking him always, as scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second commandment is like unto it, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we move through this sermon series that I'm gonna entitle in the presence of my enemies, we need to ask, and who is my enemy? And how should I respond to this enemy? Because that is not an easy answer. There is no one size fits all. Jesus challenged us with this principle, love your enemy. But here's my question. How do we reconcile Jesus' command, love your enemy, with Psalm 3-7, in which David says, strike all my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. We're going to need to look at that passage. What? That sounds like he is so filled with anger and revenge and animosity. And I'm going to tell you, no, he's not. And there is a reason why that's there. But we will try to love some enemies, and we will not be able to. What do we do? Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. Do we, in loving our enemies, then allow him to take advantage of us or our family? Do we allow him to bring us harm or even kill us? Do we pay back the wrong our enemy has done to us or perhaps pray for his downfall? Now, my wife and I did not pray for our neighbor's downfall. We actually pray because by maybe leaving our neighborhood, he might be in a better place. I don't know. Do we pray for their downfall? Do we welcome him? Do we reject him? In other words, in loving our enemy, do we become a welcome mat for him to wipe his feet on? Or do we actually retract the welcome mat altogether? Where do we draw the line if a line even needs to be drawn? If after going through our previous sermon series on loving God passionately, we come to the conclusion we should love God with all of our heart, then how do we love our enemy? How do we love our enemy? I want you to turn there to Matthew chapter 5. As, you, as you're there, we're going to start in verse 38 and read through verse 48. Uh, actually, before we read that, this concept of love your enemy, and I'm going to say it again, this is a principle that is not a one-size-fits-all because people, all, 
People are different. Enemies are different. And you're going to see as we go through scriptures, there's different types of enemies. And some of them are redemptive and some of them are not. How do we respond to them? Scripture says, yes, love our enemies, but let's remember scripture also says, avoid a man who gossips. Proverbs 20, verse 19. It also says in Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, it says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. So we have to be careful as we seek to love our enemies. Again, it is not a one-size principle fits all. <laughs> so why am I entitling this in the presence of our enemies? Obviously, if you're familiar with that, it is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's divided up. The first three verses give us a picture of God or Yahweh, Jehovah, as the great shepherd. And then it switches from him being a shepherd to him being a host, a rather wealthy host. Some people call this psalm the great sheik. Because a sheik is a wealthy businessman in the Middle East. And in this situation, he's a shepherd. And so if you want to call him a sheik, if you want to call him a uh, shepherd king, however it's called, there in verse 4, he actually says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here in this picture, we have this wealthy sheep owner inviting you to his table. But guess who else is there? David has been invited to the Lord's table. But guess who else is there? His enemies are there. And God spreads this table before David. God anoints David's head with oil, which would be, that seems a little bit, strange in our culture why would I come to your house and you try it and you kind of chase me around trying to pour oil on my head what is up with that and the truth is that in their culture to anoint your head with oil was a blessing you would also want to wash their feet yeah I would say keep the shoes and socks on Thank you very much. But back then, of course, they didn't have shoes and socks. They had sandals, and of course, they would get dirty. And so that would be a way to welcome your guests. And the point is that when our attitude is right, God's heart is to bless us even in the presence of our enemies. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to see this guiding principle, love your enemy. And I want to see, at least for today, how this begins our journey through understanding love your enemy, and I'm entitling it the second mile. But follow me, if you would, with verse 38, Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your brothers what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think Juliana put it well, with every command, 
He will also give us the grace to be able to walk that out. This is hard, challenging. Love your enemy. Now, Jesus shares love your enemy here in verse 43, 44, and he counters it like he does the five other examples. You've heard it said, and he quotes from Scripture and then he says, but I say unto you, and let me just give you a little bit of background so we don't have to read all five examples. We've read the last two, but the other four, he does quote from scripture. Do not commit adultery, but I say unto you. Do not murder, but I say unto you. And in every simple example, I need us to understand this. Jesus does not tell us to set these Old Testament challenges Aside, he doesn't tell us to do that. Instead, he shows us a way to walk in that principle that is so much deeper than what the Pharisees had been teaching in his day. Do not commit murder. Well, I tell you that if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him. Do not commit adultery. Wonderful, kudos to you. You avoid the uh, sexually impure woman's house. You don't sleep with the prostitute, but do you lust after her in your heart? Then guess what? You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so Jesus gives us these challenges from the Old Testament and then goes deeper. The problem, though, is we come to this last one, love your neighbor, that next one, and Hate your enemy. That last one is nowhere to be found in Scripture. It is more of an inference that the Pharisees have been teaching of Jesus' day. Love your enemy and hate your neighbor. And so Jesus is needing to actually correct that last. Do we love our neighbor, church? Yes, as ourselves. But we do not hate our neighbor. And this was the inference. Remember that psalm that I read, Psalm 3-7. <coughs> Strike my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. And the implication was, I must, I guess I'm supposed to hate my enemy. And now Jesus has to correct that. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want us to ask that question, how do we do this incredibly hard thing that Jesus calls loving our enemy? Well, the first several verses, 38 through 42, Jesus uses this to set us up and segue into that very difficult challenge that was not very popular in his day, love your enemy. They were under Roman rule, and so guess who was their enemy? You mean to tell me, Jesus, that I'm supposed to love the Roman soldier? Like when he tells me by Roman rule that I am supposed to carry his backpack for an entire mile, that I'm supposed to do that? And Jesus, in essence, is saying, you got it. But there's more. And God and Jesus is wanting to put our heart in check. And he starts off with this. He says, do not resist an evil person. Well, here's my question to you then. Church, if you are not supposed to resist an evil person, and we take that principle in its broadest sense, whatever it might mean, does that mean that we should welcome ISIS into America? Does that mean that if a rapist knocks on my door, that I should let him in? Now, he's not going to be knocking on my door, right? But the truth is, there is evil out there, and do we welcome that evil into our home? Do we welcome that evil into our country? And if we don't, then aren't we breaking this command, do not resist an evil person? Well, can I just tell you, this Greek word for resist, it means to oppose, okay? And it's used two times, one in James, one in 1 Peter 5, that we are to resist or oppose the evil one, the devil. So how is it that Jesus is saying, don't resist an evil person, but resist the devil? Because twice we are told to, to resist the devil, to oppose him. <laughs> Jesus actually told his disciples in Luke 22, <clears throat> he said, I told you in the, this is his discourse up in the upper room, right before the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This would be on what they call Maundy Thursday, where they're celebrating the Passover feast. After the feast, he, he dialogues with them. 
and he, <coughs> excuse me, and he says, how many swords do you have? You've heard, excuse me, you've heard me say that when you go out to bring no money or, and no purse, but now I say to you, and he gives them new instructions now, as if there is a new day dawning, and I need you to be prepared for it. And he concludes it with this, how many swords do you have? Well, well, golly, Jesus, you didn't ask us to bring swords before. Now we're supposed to bring swords on this adventure to win the world to you? Uh, and they say, ah, we've got two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And I can only imagine, I mean, if I were one of his disciples, I would be somewhat confused. Now they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus, for however long, one hour, two hours, he is praying in the garden, asking them as they fall asleep, could you not just watch and pray for one hour, just, just one hour? And obviously they couldn't. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, Jesus says there. But then his accusers, led by Judas, who comes in and kisses Jesus on the cheek to identify him, these, this mob then arrests Jesus, and Peter pulls out his sword, coming to Jesus' rescue, and he swings the sword, aggressively cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Now, you might remember, Jesus sees this. He picks up the ear from the ground, puts it back on, and he heals the man. In The Passion of the Christ, I think it's, I think it's that movie I'm thinking of. It's, it, it's really, truly an awesome scene how they, how they do that. In the midst of all of the mayhem that's happening at that moment, Jesus extends compassion, and he says to Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, can I just tell you this? Because I don't have minutes and minutes and minutes to, to discuss this. But let me just say, as you study through that, maybe a couple of times, understand Jesus is asking them to bring swords, and in this case, two swords, not so that they can win the world. That was Mohammed's way, not Christ's way, by the way. And he, he was not wanting them to win the world with force or the swords, but he knew what was about to happen and so he wants them to be able to defend themselves. The problem, though, is that Peter acts aggressively. He is on the offense, not the defense. Because if, you, if you're not aware of the guards that came, the mob that came, had legal right to arrest Jesus. Granted, under suspicions, false accusations, but they had the right to do that. They were not about to kill him. They were just arresting him. Now, granted, and I think the disciples knew this, they're, they're, something's up here. It's not good. They're going to falsely accuse him. This isn't right. This is an injustice. And so Peter responds aggressively, offensively, pulls out his sword, and he attacks them when he himself was not being attacked. And Peter, excuse me, Jesus rebukes Peter for that. That was the wrong use of the sword. The sword is to be used to defend yourself. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Why would Jesus ask them then to take two swords if this is a principle that is to be applied generally and not specifically in its context, do not resist an evil person? Now, do you follow me? We're finding other examples in scripture that would seem to contradict what Jesus is saying. Do not resist an evil person. And so, because what I'm needing us to do is hone this in. This is not a general principle. Maybe you've seen it in movies where, and I saw this in a movie, in which a pastor um, is attacked and he's punched. And they say, so are you going to turn the other cheek? And the pastor gets up and he does this. And he turns the other cheek and they just beat him up. And I have this look at that and I say, that is not what Jesus was saying. If that's not what he was saying, then what was he saying? Now, let's go back because I skipped a verse, didn't I? He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Jesus immediately gives us the context right there because here's the problem. Eye for eye and a tooth for tooth. 
was not something that was just given out as a common day-to-day practice. Hey, if someone comes up to you and knocks out your tooth, you track him down and you knock out his tooth. But that is how it was being played out in Jesus' day. Now, at those commands were actually given. You can test this. There's three places, at least in which this command, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is given. And it is always given to what we would call the judiciary. It was given to those who had the authority to carry out punishment for crime. So, there is a difference between me and my authority and a policeman's authority. I do not always follow the rules of a policeman, okay? (coughs) And so, Jesus is basically saying, you have heard it said, and he is not about to contradict it, by the way, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That is, punishment should fit the crime. That is, by the way, a principle that our founding fathers established our laws upon. Let the punishment fit the crime. Not excessive and not too lax. Let the punishment fit the crime. But it is meant for the state, the judiciary, those in authority to carry that out, not the ordinary Joe on the street like me. But that, in Jesus' day, is what people were doing. What do we call that? When someone punches you in your mouth, you punch them back. What do we call that? Revenge. There you go. And so Jesus, from the get-go, he sets up the context. The context is revenge. That's right. And so he says, in this case, there is something inside of you in which when someone does you harm, you are just going to want to knock their teeth out. And I understand that, but don't do that. Don't resist that evil person. Our natural inclination is to be on the defense when something bad happens to us. I I get that. Do you guys understand this? All of us, I am sure. I just have to talk about marriage relationships and, and you married couples, you're dialed in right now. Yep, my spouse came to me and said, and man, they, they were just wrong. And so I came back with this zinger and I put him in their place or her or him in his place because that was wrong for them to do that. Yeah, we're gonna touch on that in a moment. Jesus says not to seek revenge. 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus is, is spoke, Peter talks about Jesus, and he says when, when he was reviled against, he did not revile in return. Jesus did not retaliate. He did not seek revenge. Now, may I just add this little caveat? Um, when Jesus was arrested, understand that he was like a sheep before his slaughterers and his mouth was zipped. Scripture says in John 10, I lay my life down of my own accord. No one does this for me. As a matter of fact, when Peter talks about, excuse me, when Pilate talks about the power to put him to death, he says, you don't have any power except that which is given to you from heaven. And so he's trying to give Pilate this clue. You know, I am not here against my will. I am here because this is God's sovereign overarching plan that I go to the, he's not saying this uh, to, to Pilate, but he is, this is the purpose. And so he laid his life down. And so I'm not suggesting to you that because Jesus allowed them to do this and did not speak on his own defense that we shouldn't. I am not saying that. I am just simply saying Jesus' point here is that when when someone does harm to you, when someone wants to steal from you, something inside of you is going to get riled up and you're going to want to get in their grill and you're going to want to say, no way, and you're going to want to deck the person. And if it's your spouse, you're going to want to get defensive because why? They're angry. You hurt them. They're angry and they come at you and man, they want to eat you for lunch and you you get defensive and you just say, no, this is wrong. And guess what happens? This huge argument. A huge argument. And the bottom line is, we are responding out of revenge. 
Turn with me for a moment to, to Romans chapter 12. Because of the time, I'm going to immediately jump into reading it. But in Romans 12, <coughs> starting with verse 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. That, by the way, does not mean that everybody is defining what is right, so do that. They're just saying, when you do what's right, don't be afraid to do it in front of everybody. Okay? In, in, in view of other people and what they're seeing, don't do the wrong and get punished for it. Do the right. Make sure you do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my brothers, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And he concludes with this. By the way, that was a quote from Proverbs. And he concludes with this, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what church? Good. Overcome evil with good. Now, some people have kind of twisted the words there. It's a quote from Proverbs that by doing good, you're going to heap burning coals on their head, meaning they're going to get really hot-tempered and angry. And can I tell you that is absolutely not what that proverb means. It is, it is not your goal that by doing good, you get them angry. Rather, that is a cultural custom. If we run out of sugar in our culture, what do we do? We run next door, can I borrow a cup of sugar? If you need two eggs, you run next door, hey, can I borrow two eggs? And at some point, you might pay them back. Back then, they did not have electric ovens. They had fire, wood type of ovens. And, and many times they would be in the ground in a pit and then they would cover them up with coals and hope that the coals would be strong enough to light the fire the next day. And many times these fires were, these pits were in their own homes. And so if they, if they uncovered the coals and they were out, they needed more coals to start a fire, they would go next door and, and borrow a cup of coals. Except they didn't carry it in a cup, they carried it on their head. And Jesus is saying, Excuse me, the, the, the quote from Proverbs, rather, is saying that if you're a generous person, even to your enemies, heap up those coals. Be generous to them. Don't give them one or two. Yeah, right. You want me to help you out? Oh, yeah. Here's a token of my love for you, enemy. I'll give you just one coal. No, heap them up. Heap them up. And, and I can only imagine there was a sufficient padding on their head, can't you? Yeah. It wasn't metal that just, they, uh -uh. but rather, this is an example of generosity. So when your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Feed them. If they're thirsty, what do you do? Hey, sorry, not here, buddy. No, give them something to drink. And if they need coals, keep up those coals. Be generous to them. In doing this to an enemy, you are overcoming evil that they have done with good. When we overcome evil with evil, we call that what? Tell me again, revenge. Jesus says, no, don't do this. Now we come to this portion. Go back to Matthew 5, if you would. We come back to, I mean, there's several examples that Jesus gives, and I'm going to kind of cherry pick one, if I could, to elaborate on how we are to love our enemy. And <laughs> And Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, I mentioned a little earlier, Roman rule was if a soldier who had conquered Israel, by the way, had asked you as a Jew, please carry my knapsack. And it would be a heavy thing on his back. You would have to, you would be obligated to do that according to Roman rule. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Instead of arguing with him, instead of fighting him, instead of opposing him, instead of declaring your rights, say, yes, I'll do that and go with him that mile. And then at the end of that one mile, so he doesn't have to look for some other Jew to carry his backpack. 
tell him you'll go a second mile. Go the extra mile. Serve him. He does not deserve to be served. He is living in that land oppressing you. I get that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Jesus is saying, but serve your enemy anyway. Don't respond with anger. Don't respond with terse words, accusatory. Don't get into arguments. Gladly serve. Gladly serve. Give. Be generous. And this is Jesus' point. This can, as I mentioned earlier, readily apply to many marital arguments. When our spouse comes to us in anger, we perceive that they are wanting to attack us. Is this not true? And when someone is attacking you, how do you position yourself? Do you position yourself to defend yourself? You're ready for this attack, you're hunkered down, okay, I'm ready. And when they come at you and start accusing you, and you know what? They can be 100% spot on, but because they're angry and, and they just they want to drive this thing home. And there's something in their minds that says they, they feel obligated. I've got to do this. You know, when I've counseled couples, I, I've discovered this amazing thing, and I've found it to be true even in my life. You feel like, well, I mean, there's a problem, and I am going to deal with this problem. So here we go. And they just step into this. You know what? I need to talk to you. You can already tell you, you need to talk to me. Yes, put down what you're doing, and we need to talk. Okay, I'm kind of busy. Can we do it a little? No, we need to deal with this now. Oh, you're perceiving they are more than just a little angry. We need to have a discussion. Okay, just be honest. Just say what's really. We need to have an argument right now. That's what you mean to say. And we, oh, we need to discuss this. And they start unfolding for you what you did or said that was wrong or hurtful, or if it continues, the world is probably going to end. It is that serious. We must discuss it right now. And we realize that there is this tendency in us to defend ourselves even when we realize that we are absolutely wrong. We feel this, I've got to defend my reputation. Yeah, what reputation? You do this thing like all the time, okay? Just be honest. But we get defensive. And we might even say, well, I'm going to get angry at her too now, or him. And so we get angry, and before you know it, man, it is a full-blown argument. I heard a story one time in which the woman was telling her husband, he, she said, look, if you come home late hanging out with the boys one more time, and she's shaking this firing pan, she says, you are never going to see me again. It's going to be a long time before you see me again. The next night, he came home late, and sure enough, he did not see her for a long time. Actually, it took about two weeks for the swelling to go down, but after the swelling... <laughs> Sometimes, though, when we get into these arguments, it can be pretty physical. Yeah, yeah, definitely don't do that. But how do we respond in a way that we can divert the arguments, that we can bring it down? Proverbs 15.1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When someone comes at you with anger, don't respond with anger because that's your natural tendency to be defensive. You're going to use your words to do what? Take revenge. How dare you attack me? I don't care if you're right. Uh, how dare you attack me? I will attack you back. That's called revenge. But we use our anger, we use our words to get back at people, even our spouses. Now, I am not suggesting that our spouses or your spouse is your enemy. 
That is a common misconception. Even in the church, our spouse is not our enemy. Maybe at that given moment, they are acting like an enemy. They are not. You are on the same team. Your enemy, the devil, however, is getting involved in that relationship. How do you keep him from doing that? Scripture says respond with a gentle answer. Diffuse the situation. Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of anger. So, don't attack. <clears throat> In the situation with my neighbor, the second neighbor, I knew that I was in the wrong. There was something inside of me that wanted to be defensive. Come on, John, really, get a life. Everybody out here except right here, this is why we chose it, because everyone else is shooting off fireworks. So, I mean, this is the time to celebrate. Loosen up, John. That's what I, or, or just don't sleep with your windows open. Come on. That's what I wanted to say. And I would have, it would have gotten into an argument, and the police probably would have had to have been called, and I probably still would have tried to justify myself. But the truth is, I realized, you know what? This isn't right. Truth be told, I know that John goes to bed early. I'd forgotten about it, and I need to apologize to him. So there was something inside of me. I could feel it. It was, a, it was an anger. It was, oh, yeah, you just crossed that street, and we'll see about this. And God put my spirit in check, and he said, Mike, humble yourself swallow the pride, and just apologize to him. So I realized, I was trying to get a word in edgewise with his four-letter words. I realized that I, I needed to apologize, and so I did that. Unfortunately, that relationship did not get redeemed. And you're going to find that some of your enemies, you're going to try, you're going to love on them, you're going to do what you can, and you know what? You are going to blow it, and that will probably get them angry and you might even feel like it's all your fault. I, trust me, it's not. If you seek to apologize, seek to bridge that gap, seek to say I'm sorry to your wife or to your husband, instead of getting all kinds of defensive and angry, diffuse the situation, speak gently, and just say, I, I, my wife and I, we do it, we just say the first person to apologize wins. First person to apologize wins. You know what, there's something inside of us, okay, inside of me, that says, you know what, but I'm only 20% wrong. She's 80% wrong, but she's over there thinking, you know what, he is like 80, maybe even 90% wrong, and I'm only 10 to 20% wrong. Why should I apologize? And you can go through that rationale all night while you're arguing, but the first person to apologize wins. Just own your wrong. That's how you win your enemy. Or someone, a moment, is acting like an enemy. So going that extra mile is giving them what they don't necessarily deserve. My neighbor, angry, cussing with my family there, I could have said, hey, 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 stop talking that way, John, and act like a man. But that wouldn't have gone anywhere except to the hospital and to the, police, to the police station. And and I have to be willing, you know, maybe there was something more that I could do to have won my neighbor's heart, and I didn't do it. And I've got to be open to that. How can we go the extra mile? I'm going to suggest to you first, set aside your justifications for anger. You've got probably really good reasons to be angry. And I'm going to challenge you as Jesus is getting at here. That anger is going to want you to seek revenge. Don't do that. So get rid of the anger. Set aside your justifications for why you should be angry. And it's totally okay to be angry. Now, are there occasions in which anger is appropriate? Yes, there are. We'll talk about that another time. Secondly, find a way to serve him or her. Overcome evil with good. I want to share a little story with you and kind of wrap this up. 
When I was about 25 years old, I was employed at Ray Lumber Company. I had been invited into that company to do a, uh, a not-so-skilled job of data entry. Uh, computers, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the land, computers were uh, just recently invented. They were, try they, they were trying to transition companies onto computer, make inventory easier, and that was my job. I was supposed to, the program was already there. I went out on the floor. I wrote up the information needed. I went back to my desk. I entered it into the computer so that at some point, the entire store, and I was just responsible for the interior of the store, all the lumber was someone else, so that that would be able to be inventoried properly. There were some of the employees there, one in particular whose name is Frank, and he hated me. I was the enemy. And he did not mince his words whatsoever. He pulled no punches. He told me when I was, when the first time that I was there, <coughs> excuse me, and he had opportunity to speak. So obviously, not on the floor, I was taking my lunch break. He let me know what he thought of my job. And I can't repeat what he said, but he let me know that uh, I should probably leave. Um, that this computer thing, he had seen it happen before, and it just destroyed businesses. The, the computers were of the devil, okay? <laughs> to err as human, to really foul things up, takes a computer. That was, that's what he believed. And I kind of half believed that myself, honestly, church. But I'm getting paid to do this, so I was okay with it. <laughs> so I am, I'm doing this, and I'm just, something inside of me wanted to say, Yo, Frank, just get a life, buddy. I mean, do you even want to work here? This is, the, this is the owner's decision. What are you trying to blame? I could come up with a hundred reasons why Frank should just close his mouth, stop speaking, and go back out on the floor and do his job. And I realized in a very slim moment of brilliance, I probably shouldn't do that. And instead, I asked him a question. So Frank why are you so angry? Wow, did I invite a response. But what I also invited was Frank opening up his heart. And even though it took several weeks for him to get, his, get over his hatred for me because of what I represented to him, the demise of the business, and him having no job eventually, and it would be all my fault. Once he was able to get through that, Every now and then, I would ask Frank, let, here, grab, grab some lunch and let's talk. And Frank began to unfold for me his story of when he was a child, he was physically abused by his mother. Even his dad was afraid of his mother. He eventually turned to alcoholism, and one day, God set him free from that. Totally set him free. To the point where God eventually called him to be a pastor in the Brethren denomination. And he was preaching the gospel. And the, his church was growing. As a matter of fact, it was growing faster than his best friend's church not too far away. And the people from that pastor's church, some of them started coming over to his church. And he said, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. Please go back. He's my friend. And he tried to cut that short, but he, they developed a bus ministry and they were reaching into neighborhoods and the church was growing like gangbusters. And then when he went to this a general assembly of other pastors, this man who he thought was his best friend stood up and started accusing him falsely of stealing sheep, of sabotaging his church, and everything he said was not true. And it deeply wounded him to the point where he started going back to drinking, filled with bitterness, stepped out of the pastorate, and he said, Mike, and, and during this time when Frank is talking to me, he is a short guy. He probably weighed 110 pounds dripping wet, but he is the feistiest guy you ever want to meet, okay? And he is just talking to me, and he's speaking through his teeth half the time. And he said, Mike, I would sit 
in my living room, hoping that my pastor friend would come to the door and I'd say, come in, and I'd reach for the gun next to me and I would kill him. Frank was so engulfed in bitterness. He had, when I met him, he had just given up alcohol. He had been married and his wife had said, he was older, she was younger. They had had kids and she was saying, look, Frank, this is gonna destroy us. You have got to get rid of this alcohol. So Frank got rid of the alcohol for one year, he'd been dry, but he had not gotten rid of the anger and the bitterness. He was angry with God. He, he was angry with everybody, including computers. And Frank and I, as we began to talk, and his, he just opened up, God began to soften his heart. I can't even say it was something that I said. God just began to soften his heart. And within about a year's time, Frank said, hey, you know what? I want you to know, uh, my wife and I, we're starting to go back to church. Same denomination. I met the pastor, really good guy. And there is, over the next couple of weeks, month or two, that anger started fading away. And he said, Mike, I'd like to invite you and your wife over for, for dinner. My, my wife and I would love to have you over. Now, I'm 25 and he's about 55 to 60. And he invites us over, this young couple, and his, when Frank went to get the drinks, she said, you rescued my husband. And I'm thinking, I did nothing of the sort. <laughs> Truly, I just talked with him. I encouraged him to read his Bible again. I encouraged him to forgive. Frank totally dominated the conversations. I was a sounding board. That's good, Frank. Frank, don't do that. <laughs> Frank, don't bring C4 into this place, okay? I know you hate computers. And she said, Mike, whatever you said, God used you, and my husband's a different person today. He's not filled with anger anymore. Our marriage has never been better. And Frank's life totally changed. I'm going to be honest with you. I have very many flaws. If I have enemies, I probably don't doubt them for being my enemies. It happens. But when we have an enemy, we do what we can to love them, and we have to leave the rest to God. And my prayer is that we would enter into these situations as Jesus tells us to step into them with the heart of love, not how dare you and clobber them with a club. You love them. And by God's grace, some of them will be won. And I'm so grateful that that gentleman across the street, I had a chance to share the gospel with him. The other neighbor, older gentleman, had a chance to share the gospel with him. I'd been to church growing up. I felt robbed because we were right in the midst of a ministry, and he ended up moving to uh, New Smyrna. I've not heard from him since. Some of them can be rescued. Some of them can be redeemed. And that is the heart of God. Church, let's love our neighbors. Let's go the second mile. And let's pray that God would step in and rescue and redeem. Okay? Stand with me. Father, there are all kinds of enemies out there. We don't want any of them. There are those who absolutely oppose us like ISIS and many others, and even some of our neighbors. There are others, God, that we can win. Give us the right heart, God. Get rid of the anger. Get rid of the defensiveness. Break through our pride. There's plenty of it, God. And let your grace control us. Let us speak truth in love. Let us get rid of anger. And let us love 
even our enemies. Father, we need your grace to do this. Would you work through us? Would you help us, God? Maybe some of us right now, we just don't want to. Break through that, God. And give us a supernatural love, even for our enemies. Please, God. In Jesus' name.